unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. On Saturday, September 9th, Prime Minister Narendra Modi surprised observers by announcing on day one of the G20 summit in New Delhi that all 20 nations had achieved consensus on the New Delhi G20 summit leaders' declaration. The announcement capped nine months of frenzied activity, which involved thousands of meetings, consultations, and side events associated with India's presidency. It also came just days after many close to the process warned that a consensus may be out of reach due to continued disagreement over language condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine. To talk about the G20 summit and what it means for India and Indian foreign policy, I'm pleased to be joined on the show this week by Ashok Malik. Ashok is a partner at the Asia Group and chair of its India practice. He previously served as policy advisor to external affairs minister S.J. Shankar. Between 2017 and 2019, he was speechwriter and spokesperson for the president of India. Prior to joining government, Ashok has had a lengthy career as a highly regarded journalist and columnist. In 2016, he was awarded the Padma Shri, one of India's highest civilian honors. Ashok, it is so nice to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Milan. Always a pleasure. I want to begin by asking you uh, to, uh, to a question that's kind of at the 30,000-foot level, uh, which is about the larger symbolic importance of the recently concluded Delhi edition of the G20. Uh, I, I want to quote something that your former boss, uh, Minister Jay Shankar, recently said, which was that the G20 had made India ready for the world and the world ready for India. And I thought we could begin by just asking you to reflect on the minister's statement and tell us a little bit about what you think he meant by that. Uh, well, he probably meant several things. And frankly, that that wonderful line by Mr. Jay Shankar can be interpreted in, in many very positive ways. Uh, at the simplest level, at the most symbolic level, perhaps, uh, the fact that the G20 took place in just so many different parts of India, all of our states and Indian territories, uh, in over 60 cities, uh, brought foreign policy much closer to, to ordinary citizens. And uh, it, it both reflected a growing interest in foreign policy and international engagement in, in, in India that is very different from what it was two or three or four decades ago, uh, where engagement with foreign countries, foreign governments, foreign institutions, foreign businesses, with, with the world really, is, is much wider and experienced by a far larger uh, proportion of our population than was the case uh, in, say, the 80s or, the, or even the 90s or certainly the 50s and 60s. Uh, and uh, as many governments across the world, including in the United States, have realized, uh, citizens and, and local pop populations are, and local people, really, are very interrogative of the process of foreign policy and of international engagement. They're both interested and interrogated. They want to know what international engagement brings to them and to their families and how it's relevant to their daily lives. And uh, from, from a domestic uh, perspective, making India ready for its, its wider engagement with the world, for its wider role in the world, uh, was a principal achievement and outcome, I'd say, of this uh, G20 summit. Uh, and quite honestly, I think this is something other G20 hosts, including uh, Brazil and South Africa, both of which are also emerging economies like India, 
But even the United States, when it hosts the G20 summit in 2026, so these are lessons uh, all of these countries will absorb. Because, uh, you know, I'm sure Jake Sullivan, when he flew back to Washington from the G20 summit in India and reflected on how India did the G20 and what he means by a foreign policy for the middle class in the United States, we would have seen a convergence. So that was one aspect of what Mr. Jayashankar probably alluded to. The second was uh, at a more substantive level. The G20 was born in a crisis. It, it began as a, as a finance minister's meeting straight after the Asian flu of, of 1997-98. Uh, its next upgrade, as it were, uh, was in 2008 to 2009, following the global financial crisis. This is the next inflection point in the G20. And uh, it's, it it's comes not after one crisis, but uh, what has been called a polycrisis, and is really a, a mix of, of three major uh, tectonic shifts in, in recent human history. Uh, the COVID pandemic and its aftermath, which has been devastating in terms of uh, development and economics for so many of us. Uh, the Ukraine-Russia war, with its consequences on, on energy, on food, on, on a number of... Uh, issues, and then the growing geopolitical divide which, and dissonance between uh, China and many countries, including, of course, the US, but also India and other parts and other Asian countries. All of these have had consequences. All of these uh, have long-term implications. G20 was meeting uh, in, in, the, in this backdrop. Uh, it was important for G20 to establish that it was still resilient, it was still viable, it still had utility and value in this in this post-Ukraine, post-COVID, post-geopolitical rift world. And particularly could still be of use to, to the vast concourse of humanity, the 125-odd countries in the global south. Uh, I think India and its partners, uh, including, of course, the United States, uh, achieved this with a fair degree of success at the G20. So in a sense, the world became more acutely aware of India's ability to be a problem solver, a bridge, a negotiator, uh, and uh, a force for international reconciliation, or at least wire media, uh, in, in the best manner possible. Uh, it also established the growing alignment, and if, if, if further evidence were needed, between the United States and India in terms of where they want to take G20 and take uh, the world on. Ashok, you've opened up many, many lines of inquiry. Let me just highlight one. Um, you know, in, in something I'd previously written, uh, I had argued that Prime Minister Modi has successfully moved foreign policy from being an elite issue to being more of a mass issue, which is a pretty significant shift. It's, it's not something that uh, has been commonplace in India. And what I mean by that is that, you know, ordinary Indians might not have uh, memorized the, the 83 paragraphs of the Delhi Declaration, but they nevertheless are taking great pride in India's enhanced global standing, right? And this is a trend that we could see culminating, in a sense, with this uh, G20. Just tell us a little bit, um, maybe putting on your, your, your former hat as a kind of political analyst, 
you know, how do you think the salience of foreign policy has shifted in the minds of the Ahmadmi, right? I mean, it, it, what are the conversations people are having? What are the feelings that they're having that are, that, that are perhaps different and unique today as compared to 10 or 20 years ago? You know, this is it's not just the symbolism of seeing your country at the big stage or seeing, seeing your prime minister or your leader uh, speaking at, at various platforms, whether in New York or, or in Riyadh or wherever. But there is something more substantive about India's growing interest in foreign policy, the common Indian's greater interest in foreign policy. Uh, foreign policy concerns have entered the political discourse and, and the campaign discourse in, in, let's say, the United States, or frankly, even in Britain, uh, in sometimes in a sometimes negative way, as a pushback against uh, globalization, as a pushback against, in the case of of Britain against uh, Brussels and the EU and all that has meant. In in, 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 in the US, we've had this debate since, since the early 2000s, maybe even the late 1990s about free trade and globalization, uh, Al Gore, uh, Donald Trump, very different people, but both reflected it in some respects. And it, it was part of the, the campaign politics. Uh, the Biden administration has been forced to respond to it. India, is different. The common Indian's interest in foreign policy has grown with international engagement. And it's, it's not a, a, a response to growing international engagement, a negative response to international engagement. It's actually a positive response. Because simply speaking, if you compare India's economy today to what it was in 1991, when the economy began to open up, uh, in 1991, if I remember correctly, some 15% of India's GDP was dependent on external trade. That number is about 45% today, give or take a little. It peaked at about 50 some years ago. Now, and of course, the economy is much, much larger. It was uh, about 300 billion in 1991, the US dollars. So today's 3.5 or 3.8 trillion. So uh, a much wider proportion of a much larger economy is dependent on international trade, on buying and selling goods and services with, with the rest of the world. So foreign engagement, international engagement, simply matters more to the prosperity of many more families. Uh, and then, of course, there are more Indians who study abroad. There are more Indians who, who work abroad. There are more Indians who uh, do travel abroad for, 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 for business, for, for leisure, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then there's, of course, the communication revolution, which has brought uh, the world to everyone's uh, living rooms. And uh, this is... The, the the distinction between the local and the global is often just not there or difficult to 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 tell because events that happened in in a far off country or a far off city are no longer distant and you know esoteric items they could reflect on you know your business on your line of work on your next visa application on the life of your cousin who's living or start living or studying in that city. And I think Prime Minister Narendra Modi recognized this moment far earlier than many other politicians. That That is his gift. Of course, he started something which every politician, every successor of Narendra Modi uh, will have to grasp. But I think it was Prime Minister Modi who actually recognized that something had shifted. 
Ashok, you know, I alluded at the top of the conversation that uh, there was this anticipation uh, or suspense around this idea of whether consensus would be achieved on the communique. And I think many commentators writing the past few days are rightly celebrating the, the dogged, you know, around the clock negotiating that India's diplomats engage in to ensure that there would be uh, a consensus. To not have a consensus would be uh, unprecedented. Some analysts have also pointed out uh, that the United States and many of its Western allies also made consensus possible by backing down from their more strident language condemning Russia. And uh, they did that uh, not only to give India a win, of course, uh, but also to ensure that China did not succeed in playing spoiler. Uh, do you think there's some truth to, to these calculations? I think all of what you're saying is true. Uh, but more than look at it, in terms of did India take a victory or the, the U.S. give India a victory, I'd look at it differently. India and the U.S. were aligned in ensuring a certain outcome at the G20. And this alignment is reflective of alignment on numerous other issues between the two countries. There is a growing strategic alignment. And this G20 summit was emblematic of that growing strategic alignment. Both countries recognized that it would be futile to, to uh, have the G20 process uh, fail over a language that, at the end of the day, was not going to change things on the ground in Ukraine. Both countries recognized that uh, after a year of Herculean effort by India, with the backing of the US, to bring the concerns and the, the themes of the global south to the core of the G20 agenda, and to, to give the global south uh, the the satisfaction and the, uh, the the faith that its concerns were being heard uh, by the West, by the US, by India, by the democratic world, at the end of that process to, to falter and allow competitors for, for the hearts and minds of the, G, of the global South, uh, that, and I, you know which competitor I'm referring to, China, uh, would, if, if that were to happen, it, 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 it would be the waste of one year's effort. Uh, I think both countries recognize that, and uh, they recognize that if G20 faltered in Delhi, it would probably falter in Brasilia and then South Africa as well, and uh, the whole future of this group would be in some doubt. So uh, I think that, that alignment uh, is what really kept this G20 uh, communicate from not being a consensus document. Uh, also, do remember that when there's something Minister Jaishankar said at the press conference announcing the, the Delhi declaration. He said, uh, Bali is Bali and Delhi is Delhi. Uh, uh, things have changed. Things have moved. In a sense, things have changed because uh, last year, uh, when Bali took place, if you look at the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia had some hope that uh, Europe would have a bleak winter and that would give it some leverage. Both Russia and Ukraine uh, were looking at a spring offensive, which might have been decisive. Uh, we've gone through that process. Today, that war is in, is in a stalemate. Uh, there is, it's, it's a attritive war, it's a bloody war, but it is, in a sense, in a stalemate. And I think everybody recognizes it will it's, it's in it for a long haul. 
And the next turning point will probably come at the end of 2024, at the end of the US elections, uh, if even then. So uh, language in one paragraph of a, of a G20 communique wasn't going to change things one way or the other. Uh, you mentioned the C word, uh, which is China. And I just want to ask you about that for a second. Of course, Xi Jinping did not appear at the summit. Uh, in fact, in the run-up to the Delhi summit, the Chinese had positioned themselves uh, at many junctures as uh, obstructionists. Uh, they didn't block final consensus in the end, um, but it's fair to say they raised many objections along the way. As you step back and reflect on the summit, Ashok, what message do you think this summit and the various developments around it have sent to the top leadership in Beijing? Um, well, in not showing up, we don't know why she didn't show up. We're all guessing. Uh, perhaps there were domestic concerns, possible. Perhaps he didn't want to come and lend his personal credibility, uh, insofar as that matters to a multilateral platform that was not designed by China, but was designed by the West, in a sense, 20 years ago, or uh, two decades ago. And perhaps to some degree, he didn't want to come to India because this was India's G20. So if it had been a G20 summit held in another country, he might still have come. But given that it was held in India, uh, which is a, a rival Asian uh, power, if you will, uh, perhaps that also influenced his decision. But uh, what he served to do in not showing up was that uh, he only added, he only contributed to give even more of a spotlight to the growing uh, convergence in, in values and in interest in, in strategic outlook between India and the United States. In uh, pointing to India's uh, enormous convening power, I think one of the most powerful images coming out of the G20 week in Delhi, or the G20 weekend in Delhi, uh, was not from the G20 summit itself, but from the announcement of the India, uh, of the India Middle East Europe corridor, where you had uh, Prime Minister Modi flanked by President Biden and by Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Now, we do know that the US and Saudi Arabia have been in a difficult relationship of late. Uh, there is strategic space that has been created there for China, and China has used that space. And here, there was Prime Minister Modi bringing these leaders together for not just a symbolic meeting, but for an, an announcement that potentially uh, has great economic and uh, geopolitical potential, uh, uh, geopolitical implication. So uh, all of these messages would uh, be ample food for thought for for policymakers in, in Beijing. Oh, so, Ashok, let me ask you about the Delhi Declaration itself. Uh, there were a slew of commitments in there uh, with uh, quite wide ranging from digital public infrastructure to support for a quote unquote just clean energy transition to the reform of the multilateral development banks, which in fact is, is perhaps one of the most uh, uh, pressing concerns given that the World Bank and IMF will be meeting for their fall meeting shortly. As you reflect on this 83-paragraph document, are there specific elements that stood out to you as being especially noteworthy uh, in the here and now? Well, certainly the language on climate change and climate finance uh, and uh, 
the language on uh, multilateral banks ex uh, remit expansion and reform uh, to take into account uh, uh, growing financial needs and, uh, and pressing financial needs of, of the developing world, uh, including the issue of uh, sustainable debt. Uh, those two, as well as on DPI, which is an aspiration every country now has, uh, on DPI, uh, the, the balance between the public and private sectors, uh, which was very important to many countries, was, was put in place. Uh, the focus or the emphasis on, on use of transparent technology, use of open source technology wherever possible, and on interoperability uh, was also institutionalized. Uh, these were very positive for me. Uh, and uh, these have really set the template for uh, advance in all of these uh, areas. Uh, some of the, the financial commitments made are still fairly modest and much more will be needed. But at least we made a start. And of course, future G G20 summits will only build on these. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. On the sidelines of the meeting, as you talked about earlier, the United States, India, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, several other partners signed a memorandum of understanding that commits them to establishing a new India-Middle East-Europe Economic Corridor, or IMEC. Uh, many have uh, crudely hailed this essentially as a counter to China's much-touted Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. What do you think the significance is uh, of IMEC, and, and and do you think it effectively is a uh, an alternative uh, to to this BRI initiative? You know, there are two aspects to the BRI which have uh, which have have been disturbing and uh, frankly confounding to a lot of observers. One, uh, uh, many BRI projects seem to follow no economic uh, principle or, or rationale. Uh, there are ports or rail lines or highways being being built and developed uh, completely absent of economic justification or demand. Uh, why is there an airport in Hambantota, which has maybe one plane landing a year? Why is there a port in Hambantota, which is simply not viable? When the, the, the big population centers of, of Sri Lanka are elsewhere in the country. Or, or not, and Sri Lanka itself is only a small, small country with a small market. Uh, uh, why is there a port in Gwadar? Why are there highways uh, on the border between uh, regions occupied by Pakistan and, 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 and China, which don't have uh, the justification for such infrastructure investments? Uh, and this is true for other parts of the world as well, not just Southeast, not just South Asia. Uh, second, uh, conventional market principles are not always followed in building uh, BRI projects. Uh, this is often a case of uh, debt incurred by the host country. Uh, and while some money does go to host country elites in various forms, much of the money is a transfer between a, a lending agency in China and the Chinese infrastructure company. Uh, quite honestly, I don't see projects being built in the IMEE corridor 
following these principles. Uh, there will be projects that will have an economic rationale because all of these regions in, in the INE, all the countries concerned, uh, are going through enormous economic transformation and expansion. India is, uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia are investing enormously in a post-oil economy, which could mean anything from renewable energy to uh, to financial hubs and, and, and new cities which become international technology and financial hubs, uh, to, of course, focusing on healthcare and, and other emerging technologies. Uh, and then, of course, there is the, the, the normal passage of, of manufactured goods and services which on, on this route from, from, from India uh, to Europe and, and, and the reverse flow. Uh, so I, the countries involved in the INEE have proven economic capacities and markets. These are projects that in the end can be viable. Does that mean all of IMEE will succeed as is currently envisaged or designed? I don't know. Obviously, some projects will fail, some will, will succeed. But I am much more hopeful of, of the IMEE corridor uh, at the outset than I was uh, or I am about the BRI. You know, we've talked a couple of times already in this conversation, Ashok, about the increasing alignment between the interests of the United States and India. And I think that alignment is indeed striking. And of course, it is not something new. It's been in the works for over two decades. But since President Biden has come into office, we've seen the U.S. and India move hastily to build even stronger ties, right? So whether we're talking about defense co-production, ISET, the Quad, now the new uh, India-Middle East-European corridor. You know, I think all of these are examples. But if you look at social media, if you look at uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter, if you look at certain op-ed commentators in Indian newspapers, you will see that there is still a streak of elite opinion that is, if not anti-American, at the very least, America-skeptic. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how pronounced the divide is in India when it comes to whether or not India should grow closer and bring uh, the United States into a tighter embrace. Uh, you know, uh, India and the U.S. are moving closer. Whether governments want it or don't want it is immaterial. Uh, if you look at India's trade with the U.S., it's what, $150 billion a year, roughly? Uh, maybe they will take something. If you look at the number of Indian students there, uh, which will only increase if you have uh, uh, slightly more strict gun laws. Uh, if you look at the number of Indians who travel there, if you look at business between two countries, cultural exchange, all of that, okay, uh, society is sending you a signal. And of course, the diaspora, of course, is, adds another dimension to it, but let's leave that aside for the moment. So society is sending a signal, and uh, uh, governments are and politicians are following society in that sense. Uh, are they skeptics? Are they naysayers? Are they people on social media? Uh, people in, in, in the op-ed pages? People who uh, the both 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 countries have their versions of Cold War warriors who still think of a, uh, another era and and, and, and still obsessed with it. Uh, and are these, quite frankly, uh, people in our former community, the think tank community, who 
are still analyzing a world that has uh, that no longer exist. Oh, yes, they are. So some of the commentary about uh, uh, the outcomes of the G20 summit and how it's been a letdown uh, have come from both uh, Indian uh, commentators and, and analysts, as well as commentators and analysts in in, in the U.S. and in, in, in certain other Western countries. Uh, I would argue that governments, both the Modi government here and the Biden administration in uh, uh, Washington, have been far more pragmatic and realist. Uh, they're dealing with the world as it is, not the, the world as it should be or must be or you know might have been. So uh, I I do believe track two is in some respects behind track one. Track two is either analyzing a world that no longer exists or an ideal world that may never come about. Uh, track one is living with today's realities and, says, and, and saying, let's see how far we can stretch the, the ambit of possibilities. I, I just have to put in a plug for a deliciously uh, snarky uh, piece by Prashant Jha of the Hindustan Times. We'll link to that in the show notes where he tackles some of the hypocrisy in Indian uh, foreign policy analysis. Uh, I think we both shared this one online because it was too good to pass up. But, you know, many of the people who were saying it would be a huge embarrassment for India if they didn't arrive at a consensus are now poo-pooing the consensus, right? Uh, uh, talking about, um, you know, what, what hasn't been done, right? So it's sort of uh, um, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I think that's uh, worth keeping in mind. There's some truth to that. I, I want to just slightly segue this conversation, Ashok, to talking a little bit about domestic politics, because I, I can't have you on the show and, and not ask you about that, given your long expertise in this area. Um, we're looking ahead now, of course, to the 2024 elections. We've had 10 years almost of the BJP government under Prime Minister Modi in power. And for the first time, really just in the past year, maybe 18 months, we're starting to see the first stirrings of genuine opposition, coordination, collective action. Of course, they've announced the formation of an opposition alliance with the acronym India. Uh, we still don't have very many details about what this opposition coalition stands for, uh, who will be their leader, if, if at all, uh, what will the nature of seat sharing agreements be. But there are things clearly that are that are moving that are in the works. You know, putting your political analyst hat back on. Tell us a little bit about what you think are going to be some of the key drivers of the coming polls, right? As as we're almost you know nine months out. Well, uh, let's look at Mr. Modi's challenges and his, his his strengths. The challenges look ten years is a long time. There's obviously a certain degree of fatigue that sets in. That's inevitable. Uh, the degree of opposition unity in 2024 will almost certainly be higher than what it was in 2014 or 2019. Uh, you'll have one-to-one -one fights between, or one-to-one -one battles, direct battles between the combined opposition, as it were, and uh, the BJP in more states than you had previously. Uh, young voters uh, are very difficult to predict at the best of times. Uh, while a lot of them may admire Mr. Modi, uh, the fact is uh, they don't know of the world before Mr. Modi became prime minister. Uh, those who are coming of voting age in 2024 were less than 10 years old in, in 2014. So they've only grown up with this in this era. 
so those are some of the the challenges uh on the other side uh i think there is a growing pan indian consciousness that the degree of change and within double quotes development in india in the past 10 years uh, has been significant what do i mean by development uh, i mean a variety of things from uh, from society to to the economy but largely built on a very rapid infrastructure rollout uh, which in common parlance here is called development and has everybody been touched by all the infrastructure no but everybody has been touched by some of the infrastructure upgrade it could be rural roads it could be housing for the poor it could be an airport it could be better ports it could be a much a much improved rail network uh, and rail facilities it, it could of course be the digital infrastructure which has changed our lives so i think people are conscious that change has happened and more change can come there is a growing constituency for stability at a national level or uh, what do i base that on am i saying things that make sense to to intellectuals and you know people in, in in policy planning offices and risk analysis firms or do they make sense to common people as well i do believe they make sense to a growing number of people on the ground in india perhaps not a majority but a growing number who are in some manner or the other touched by the national economy by this the pan indian largely urban industrial economy because remember some 65% of india's gdp is uh, urban uh, and i imagine some 40% of india's population lives full time in urban india so uh, 32% from the 2011 census to place is probably about 40% now and a much larger percentage of people are probably touched by the urban economy in terms of remittances right. in terms of working in, in cities with voting in villages or, or, or living in settlements which are formally not classified as urban but resemble in most every way urban uh, life true or frankly you 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 may earn and live in uh, most of the time in in a the city but you may go home to vote you may be used to the vote so uh, there is a and we we've seen this for two or three elections we've seen this in 2009 sorry 2014 or 2020 or 2019 sorry i imagine that this constituency will be grown and uh, this constituency intuitively gets that you need someone in delhi who's thinking in on a larger canvas than just one state here or one district there this is really the national vote it's a sort of you know you can call it the early stirrings of a pan indian middle class and i think this is is the the modi continuity constituency uh, ashoka i, I want to ask you now uh, as a way of maybe wrapping up our conversation uh, about you personally uh, you are a private citizen now Uh, but you've spent uh, many of the last several years working in government uh, as i mentioned earlier you'd served the president of india as his press secretary and spokesperson more recently you were a senior advisor uh, with the rank of additional secretary to the external affairs minister uh i'd love to just ask you a little bit uh, to to maybe reflect on your 5 years plus in government um as someone who was coming from the outside 
What did you make of that experience? And, and what would you say are the kind of major lessons that you've taken away from your time in government? My five years were enormously educated. I have come out a different person. Uh, I would you know, strongly recommend a, a, a stint in government for anybody who can do it because I, I have learned enormously. It was like a, a university every all of those five years. Uh, I did have some bad experiences, but for the most part, I, I just soaked in a lot of lessons. Uh, in terms of lessons, uh, actually, I've often reflected on this myself in my private moments. Uh, I'd say there were three. One, understanding how bureaucrats think, how civil servants think. The civil service is a very strong and in many ways irreplaceable institution in many of our countries. Uh, a permanent civil service will always be there. It's important to understand how it works, how it thinks, uh, and uh, what its motivations are. Most civil servants are low-key. They are actually uh, very innocent of politics. From the outside, you think everyone's very political. They're not. They're actually quite innocent of politics. They don't understand political motivations. Uh, but they're very careful with public money. They're careful for, for good reasons, as good people. They're also careful because they don't want to make a mistake, even, you know, make a mistake without meaning to make a mistake, which gets them into trouble some years down the line. So I do remember when I joined the President's Secretariat, uh, there was a very small uh, piece of equipment that we needed to buy. A modest sum of money had to be allocated to it. I had to make the justification. And my then boss kept sending the, the the file back to me to ask me to justify things further. And I got irritated. And I actually wondered, I said, is he is he taking this out of me because it's not a career civil servant? I later on I realized what he was doing. He was trying to make the mechanism completely foolproof and insulate both me and himself from a future question. So he he made me go deeper and deeper into justifying why that equipment was needed and why I was making that recommendation. And uh, that it was just, the rigor got irritating, but the rigor was also enormously learning. So I drew something from that. And, and it, it got me thinking. Second, uh, specifically in terms of foreign policy at, at the MEA, uh, I went into government from the world of commentary, from op-ed pages and think tanks. And in this world, uh, in the, in the world of commentary, uh, when you analyze foreign policy, you look for black and white answers. You, you, you try and cut through the fog and look for clarity. You don't like ambiguity. Uh, in the foreign office, I realize ambiguity is a natural state of being. Uh, you know, and, and if certain decisions are ambiguous, it's not because the policymaker doesn't know what to do or, or can't decide. He has decided not to decide. He has decided ambiguity works best. Uh, that Now, that may sound very silly and trivial, but it was a Eureka movement for me. And my third and uh, final lesson, I have come back with a much more nuanced and uh, more informed picture of what diversity means at a workplace. I worked in the private sector. Uh, the, and private, the private sector institutions in India are very diverse. There are people from Kerala, from Kashmir, from Bengal, from Sikkim, from Gujarat. And they reflect India's horizontal diversity. No institution awakens you to India's vertical diversity the way the government does. Uh, you have people from all parts of our country. You have people from all sections of our society. Uh, I was not unsympathetic to the idea of reservations before you government. 
but I have left government with a much, much deeper appreciation of reservations. I understand the reservation system has its discrepancies and you know, some subcategories overuse it, some categories are left out. I understand that. But uh, in terms of giving a wider stake to a much greater section of our society, uh, in terms of just reflecting the, the, the enormous uh, panorama of our society, uh, I think the reservation system has been enormously useful. Uh, at the most basic level, I walked out of government realizing why, at its most idealistic, our constitution was, is, is and was, or was and is a revolutionary document. And at its, in its, at its most idealistic, our state is actually a revolutionary state. I'm sorry, I don't know if that's the answer you expected. I got a little emotional about that last answer, but it's... It, 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 it's 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 a it's a beautiful answer. In fact, I don't want to say anything uh, because we should just end on that note. But 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 there is something that's in my mind. So I'll just quickly ask you, which is, um, you know, you were somebody prior to entering government. Uh, it would not be uncommon for you, Ashok, to have had several newspaper columns in a week, right? Plus, perhaps, uh, you know, YouTube videos or other interviews or podcasts or what have you. And then you went into a situation where, of course, you spoke, you attended conferences and and, and you met people in think tanks. But, but it, it was not to discuss your own personal views, right? You were a representative of the government. And, and like it or not, there is a party line. That's true of every government employee in any, any country. Um, how did you adjust to that, right? Because I can imagine here as, as somebody like myself sitting in the world of think tanks where, for the most part, you're, you're sort of free to, to write and say whatever you want. That's one of the, 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 the few great benefits of, of this line of work, right? And then all of a sudden overnight, it, it's kind of gone. How did you adjust? It was an enormous act of self-discipline, uh, but I was there was no other way to do it. Look, if you join the civil service, even temporarily, if you join the bureaucracy, if you want the bureaucracy to respect you and trust you, you have to conform to the same discipline the bureaucracy submits to. You know, people in the civil service can also write op-eds every day, and they can also go on YouTube every day. They're not stupid. They can do it. If they don't do it, it's because their job requires them not to do it, and they see certain value in that. And if you want them to trust you, if you want to, to actually fit in as a lateral entrant, you have to submit yourself to the same discipline. And I'll end with uh, one line which uh, the late Arun Jaitley, who happened to know a little bit, uh, left with me. Uh, you know, on the day I was appointed to the President's Secretariat, I happened to phone him up and say, look, I've been offered this job, and I've said yes. He didn't say congratulations. The first thing he said was, Ashok, all your life, you've been known as someone who's written, who's spoken, who's communicated. Whatever little you've known, you had to you put out out there, perhaps with some of your own interpretation, spin, whatever. Your test now, at a time when you will know a lot more, will be to shut up. That's the first thing he told me, and he was just so right. My guest on the show this week is uh, Ashok Malik. He's a partner at the Asia Group and chair of its uh, India practice. He has served as policy advisor to the external affairs minister, as speechwriter and spokesperson for the president of India. He's had a long um, uh, 
career as a journalist, as a columnist, as somebody who's worked in the think tank world. Ashok, uh, this has been a, a whirlwind week, year, <laughs> for 10 years, however far back you want to go. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Grant Abasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.